0: is part two of a series that we started last week called The Pursuit of Happiness. Sorry, scratch that out. The Pursuit of Holiness. If you remember, some of you who were here, and the the idea behind the title is that uh, we tend to pursue happiness as the end-all and be-all of all things, right? What makes us happy in life? Do you remember some of the answers that we had last week? Let me ask you again. What do people pursue to make them happy? Fancy car, yeah, I want that Tesla. yeah. what else? Money, sure, what else? Health, what else? A house, sure. nice house. there's a there's a saying the grass is always greener on the other side. What else do people pursue to make them happy? Travel. I was very happy traveling. that's true. Anything else? You're missing so many things. What else do you, hmm? Peace, yeah, peace. Peace will make me happy, yeah. Inner peace, yeah. There was an individual who was here last week. I'm not sure if he's coming today, but he said something that I thought was quite profound. And he said, when you, when you serve somebody else, when you serve one another, it gives you happiness. I thought that was a great, great observation. But what we, we often do is happiness is everything for us. And you can go to the bookstore, and you're going to find self-help books on the pursuit of happiness, and and that, there's nothing wrong with that. It, it's it's we enjoy being happy. Uh, the 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 only thing about happiness that we sometimes don't recognize is happiness is temporary, uh, because it's based on temporary things. Usually, uh, even relationships. Relationships are temporary. They're, even your marriage in a sense, can be viewed as a temporary thing because one day it will end. One day your your spouse will pass away or you will, and it will change. Uh, and even if you're believers and even in heaven, it's going to be a different setup up there. So everything that we look for in, in the pursuit of happiness, you could argue that it, it's, it comes and it goes. I mean, your health it's great to be healthy. You'll be happy when you're healthy, but your health isn't always going to be there. It may go, and it'll likely go when you, you know, when, you, when you reach the end of life and you cross through the curtain to the other side. So a lot of these things, they're temporary, and they fill the need, but they fill the need for a time. And what the Bible does is the Bible would argue there's nothing wrong with happiness, but the priority, according to the Scripture, should be holiness. And when you pursue holiness, you'll find a happiness that's greater than the way we can define it. What you'll find is joy, and that is not based on a temporary thing. That's more of an attitude that you discover. Uh, when you become more and more Christ-like, more and more holy. So this idea of the pursuit of holiness is the series that we're doing. And last week, we talked about what it means to be holy. It's morally blameless, um, separated from sin, consecrated. That's an old word that means uh, dedicated to God, and First Peter 1, be holy for I am holy, the author said there. And we talked about, well, if that's true and if this is a priority for God and this is what he wants his people to be, why is it so difficult? Why is it so difficult to live a holy life? Uh, why do we stumble? Why do we go on that proverbial broken record all of the time? And we talked about three different problems there. Sometimes we can be self-centered rather than uh, God-centered so we're pursuing personal victory, and, you know, we want victory over this area in our life. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with victory, but God would rather we first obey him. And when we obey him and we, when we consider how our lifestyle has a direct uh, impact on our walk with God and how our sin and our transgression offends God, then maybe we will take it a little more to heart and maybe we will not cross that line as often. In Psalm 51.4, of course, David's admission of this after his, his sin with Bathsheba and the whole story from the Old Testament there. And another problem, this misunderstanding that we have uh, living by faith, to coin a term that we often use. And do we live by faith or do we live by effort? And this idea of, well, when I become a Christian, then everything is okay. And I don't have to practice holiness. It's sort of an automatic thing. And God automatically will just transform me. And I just have to sort of sit there. And it's all kind of works like magic. And there's no work of personal sanctification on my part. And we saw that that's really a problem. There's work that we have to do, even though God has done his work on the cross and God has saved us by his grace, by his mercy. And through faith, that faith is like a battery that fuels the work that we now do in the pursuit of holiness. And the last problem that we talked about is we tend to categorize sin. And some sin we think is insignificant. And others, a sin we think is so, so horrible, so terrible. But in the view of God, it's all bad. Whatever it is, it's all in the same uh, bucket of... Uh, According to God. So today we're going to look a little more about some of these concepts, uh, starting with first the holiness of God and to try and define what it means and why it is significant for us today. You know, when we think of our understanding of holiness and our definition, um, you know, as church folks and, you know, people who profess Christ and so forth. Our definition of holiness and God's definition are very different, Uh, very often very, very different. What do I mean by this? Well, we have a sort of a cultural setup of holiness in our church. And so we think that certain things, certain types of behavior, perhaps certain kinds of, of uh, dress or certain kinds of things that we do, uh, certain places that we go and we say, well, this here is holy and this is not holy. But we, we tend to have a cultural setup of holiness. I brought up this example last week. It used to be 20, 30 years ago that people had a very strong disdain. Uh, In church circles towards towards divorce. And if there was a person who actually came into the church meeting who happened to have gone through a divorce or is going through a divorce, we tend to look at that 30, 20, 30 years ago as an unholy thing. Um, God help us, Uh, we, we seem to have learned a little bit about that, and seem to have learned that, you know, people, when they put the rings on their fingers, it's not divorce that they're looking for, and sometimes these things happen, and sometimes, you know, we should, anyway, we've learned over the years, right, but we have these different cultural standards, and we say, well, surely, surely people cannot do church in a movie theater, I mean, what an unholy thing, right? I mean, look at the movies that they play on these screens, and look at the posters when you walk into this place. I mean, you can't do church in here. It's such an unholy thing. (laughs) Well, nowadays, the churches are doing church in movie theaters because, you know, you get a big screen, and you get seats, and you get air conditioner, and it's quite cozy and quite comfy. And so maybe we've learned a little bit, and, you know, we say other things, and we have all these debates. We say, well, a Christian should not do such and such ever, 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 like, for example, alcohol. they will say, well, it's an unholy thing for a Christian to even touch a little drop of alcohol. And then there are others who say, no, 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 it's not. The sin is drunkenness. And we have these debates. And so we come up with this kind of cultural understanding of holiness. But God is not like that at all. God's holiness has nothing to do with culture. It has to do with his nature. It doesn't vary from place to place. It doesn't vary from behavior to behavior. God's holiness is 100% pure. It's not dependent on any kind of cultural standard whatsoever. It is not uncertain. Uh, oftentimes in our own lives, we're not certain. We say, well, we're not sure what's right and what's wrong in this particular area. We're not sure what the right thing to do is or the wrong thing to do is. It's a very complex situation. We're not sure, we're not sure. It's interesting watching the political scene Um, This week, of course, we took a few days off. And so I'm looking at the whole news feeds and I'm watching the United States uh, political scene. There was an awful lot of news right this week about, you know, Donald Trump and his whole entourage and people going to jail and people getting immunity and all this kind of thing. And so complicated. And you, you wonder when you look at this stuff, you say, well, who's right and who's wrong and who's lying and who's telling the truth and all these things? God is nothing like that. There's no uncertainty with God in terms of his holiness and what that holiness is. There's no uncertainty, zero. He always knows the right thing to do. He always knows what's true and what's false. He always knows what's right and what's wrong. Uh, we hesitate. Oftentimes we, we know what the right thing to do may be, but we don't want to do it because maybe it'll cost us too much. Maybe we're afraid to do it, and so we hesitate, and we don't do the thing that maybe we know we should do. Well, God is not like that at all. He's never hesitant. He's, he never falters. He never fails. He's never afraid. Uh, he's not inconsistent. We can be very inconsistent. So we have certain areas of our lives that, that we've, really, we've really progressed. And we say, well, in this area of life, I'm, I'm living very clean. But in another area of my life, I've got a lot of work to do. Well, God is not like that. He's totally consistent. His holiness transcends his entire nature. Uh, So we have to understand when we look at the holiness of God, we're looking at at this, this kind of perfection that we really don't understand. As 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 human beings, it has to be revealed to us and shown to us through the scripture. First John, chapter one and verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Holiness defined the holiness of God. It's perfect freedom from all evil. So there is not a trace of of, in the the author's words there, darkness in the nature of God. Not even a little droplet, not even a smidgen in the character of God. He is light. In him there is no darkness at all, and holiness is the crown of his whole nature, of his whole character. So I want you to imagine for a moment if God, being all-powerful, we have a fancy word in theology we call that omnipotent, If God being all-knowing, we have a fancy word we call that omniscient. If God being all-present or omnipresent and all of these characteristics and God being eternal and God being all these things, what if God were not holy and yet he had all of these other characteristics? That would be a very, very dangerous thing, would it not? Uh, And it's interesting that culture often portrays this and experiments with this kind of idea. Any of you see the movie Infinity War, the Avengers movie? It only made over $2 billion worldwide. Probably there are people in the room who have seen it. Maybe you're embarrassed and you think it's culturally unholy to raise your hand that you've seen the film. But I saw the film just released on video. And here you have a depiction of a godlike figure who Really, he's pursuing all these characteristics, and if he gets these stones, you know, he's omnipotent, he's omniscient, he's, he's, all, he's got all this power, and he wants all of this power. He'd be the most powerful being, essentially be God and run the whole cosmos. But the problem with this being, Thanos is his name, is that he's morally corrupt, right? He's morally bankrupt. He's morally unholy because his method of salvation is to snap his little fingers and wipe out half of the universe. So genocide is his, is his, uh, his process of salvation. Wow, that's a morally corrupt character with all of that power. And, and we watch this, this with great fascination because there's been characters in history and people in history and leaders in history who behave in similar fashion. And so we watch it, and wow, I mean, everybody's waiting for the sequel because, of course, most of the people in the movie, I guess I could say it now, they all die, right? And so everybody's waiting to see, well, what's going to happen next? Are these characters going to come back? Like, is this is this Thanos going to be defeated? How can he have all this power, but he's morally corrupt? It's not fair. Well, God is not like that. God depicted in the Bible, there's no moral corruption in God whatsoever. He is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. Does this give you comfort or does this give you fear? Is this a source of comfort or condemnation? Because often when people think of the holiness of God and they're confronted with the holiness of God, what do they think? Well, God must be angry And they somehow equate holiness with anger. God is holy, therefore he's angry, therefore he's a judge, therefore he's going to judge me. And therefore all these things, these bad things that have happened in my life, it's the result of the judgment of God because God is holy and God is angry and God is a judge. And that's what we think of God. Uh, Is that really true when we look into the scripture? Is God a source? Is his holiness a source of comfort for you? or condemnation. It should be a source of comfort. And you can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible to see this. Genesis chapter 2, in the garden before the fall, what does God say to the couple? You must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Some of you think you really believe that there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you really take that literally? I do. Uh, In the scripture, I see no reason to interpret that as some poem or some metaphor for something else. Uh, Every indication is that this was real. And this is told to this first couple, Adam and Eve, by God. You, you, You have perfect freedom. You have protection. You have comfort. But do not, do not, do not eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And here's the consequence. When you eat from it, you will certainly die. But if you don't eat from it, you have comfort. Why? Because you're doing what I say. Why? Because you're obeying me. And that really is, a, is a evidence of holiness. When you're, when you're consecrated to God and you're doing what he says, there's protection there. There's comfort there. And what happens you know the story, right? Who comes and tempts the couple? Yeah, the serpent does, right? And we saw the serpent in the book of Revelation at the end. Uh, and you can go online and, and listen to the whole series that we did there. But in Genesis chapter 3, the couple is confronted by this, this serpent figure. I never forget when I went to, took my family to the, U, the U.S., and we saw in the state of Pennsylvania a, a depiction in front of 2,000 people on a great big stage of this whole scene um, live at, at this this great big theater. And the the, the serpent comes to the couple and, and dialogues with this couple and says, you will certainly not die. In other words, what God told you is incorrect. What I'm telling you is correct. You will certainly not die, the serpent says in, the, in this book passage to Eve. And this is this is what his explanation is. For God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened, Eve, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's he doing? He's saying, number one, God did not tell you the truth. You are you not going to die. What God is doing is he's hiding information from you. He has concealed the The fact that when you eat from that tree, you will acquire the knowledge of good and evil, which is the knowledge that he has. He doesn't want anybody being like him. He's holding out on you. He's cheating you. He's not being fair to you. And he has concealed this information from you. It is a brilliant, brilliant temptation. And, of course, the couple falls for it and they eat the fruit. You know Adam blames Eve and Eve blames Adam and all of that. And you can can read that yourself. But then you see. That Adam, he's, he's committed the, the, the disobedient act of eating from the fruit, and he hides from God. He used to have these moments where he would walk in the garden, and God would walk in the garden, as it were. And there was that, that speaks of the communion, the fellowship that they had together. And here you have him hiding, Genesis 3 and 10. And God says, where are you? Adam, as if he didn't know, and he he answers, he said, well, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. There's that condemnation, because I was naked, and so I hid, and God says, well, who told you that? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? And of course, he knew it all along, but what do you see here? It goes by very, very quickly, but now he's afraid of God, He's under a, a sense of condemnation and the and the transparency that he had with God has now been broken. And now it's I am afraid of you because I'm unclothed. And there's the, the, the transparency that he had is now broken. And so I'm hiding because I'm afraid, because I did what you told me not to do. And there's condemnation there, and the lesson that we learn is that when we live in the in the security of God when we live in Christ when we live a lifestyle where we're we're truly pursuing holiness then the holiness of God should not give us fear it should not give us terror It should not make us think of God as some some judge who's throwing lightning bolts at us and hurting us with all of these problems. It should not make us think of God that way. It should be a source of tremendous comfort because He knows what He's doing. I am protected by the holiness of God. But when I step out, Of what he wants me to do, when I transgress against his law, when I sin against him, then I'm going to fall into a sense of fear. I'm going to fall into a sense of, well, I've blown it, you see. Uh, And and sometimes what we do is we blame God for this. And we say, well, God is somehow tempting me. God has somehow created this circumstance where I've run into this trouble. But the Bible speaks against this. James 1 and 13, when tempted, not if tempted, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So are you living in a sense of condemnation or a sense of comfort because of the holiness of God? I can remember the reason, one of the main reasons why I came to Christ and made a decision to to be a Christian was because I realized I was under condemnation. Because I realized as a sinner, I now face the condemnation of God. I face the wrath of God. And that's not his problem. That's my problem. And I have to do something about that. I have to respond to what he has done for me or I will face his condemnation justfully, you see. And this is this is one of the things that should drive us to salvation. Often we, we portray the, the, the Christian life as a sort of a, this will now give me relief, or this will now make my life better, or this will solve my, my problems, or this will benefit me somehow. The primary message of Christianity is without Christ, we are under condemnation. Without Christ, our sins will drive us to condemnation. And we need salvation. We don't need more intelligence. We don't need more money. We don't need more things. What we need is to be saved from our sin, which drives us to condemnation. This is not necessarily popular, but this is the hard edge to the Christian message. And we can never turn the the, the table on God. We can never say, God, it's your fault. God, you have tempted me. God, you have brought me into this situation. We can't say that because it's very, very clear that God does not bring people into temptation. So when you're confronted with the holiness of God, you're either you're going to have one of two reactions. Uh, But the reaction that we should have if we're pursuing Christ if we're pursuing holiness should be one of tremendous comfort and you say well why then if i'm a christian have all these bad things happened to me why have it seems like a chain of things you know i was talking to a to a lady at the at the food bank at the mission where i serve and she honestly believes she's not a christian but she she honestly believes that you know she's under some some sort of curse and she thinks, it's just a string of bad things that keeps happening to me, you know. And, and I said, that's, that's nonsense. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes they just happen. And she has a kind of a surface knowledge of God. But I wouldn't say that she, she has a personal walk with God, a personal relationship with God yet. Uh, but she believes that. And she has that view that, oh, these bad things are happening. And I've met Christians who they have the same view. They say, why, why, why? Since I've become a Christian, all these things continue to happen. Maybe God's angry. Maybe God's judging me. Maybe God's holiness is condemning me somehow. Friends, your reaction should be the opposite. You should have a sense of comfort knowing ultimately that God is in perfect control of whatever you are going through, whatever you have gone through, whatever you will go through. Those things happen, and sometimes there isn't an explanation that you can find but you have to rest and trust in the holiness of God. He knows what he's doing. He's not trying to hurt you and to punish you and to judge you and to throw lightning bolts at you. Why? Because he is holy and you live under that comfort and that security and that protection. It should be that source to you. But what does this do for us in our own personal life? If God is holy and his holiness is divine, is that way and i've endeavored to try and describe it and haven't done a very good job i don't think anyone can but if god if you get a taste of the holiness of god what does that mean for your own life well there's a couple of things here that we have to learn in terms of our own uh pursuit of holiness holiness is not an optional thing for a for a christian it's not something that you say well this is a This is reserved for the monks uh, and and the people who, you know, go out on the mission field. Uh, That's what holiness is for. But that has no practical value for me and my life. This is not the expectation of God. God expects every person who claims to follow him to mimic him in their character and to be holy because he is holy. And he says, be holy in all you do, in all you do. Whatever your position is in life, whatever you're doing in life, he expects it is a command, friends, that God says, be holy in all you do. It is not something that is an option according to the scripture. It is a command of God. And it's very, very sternly uh, uh, spoken of throughout the scripture. I mean, this is a central, central doctrine of the Christian faith, the practice of holiness. But this is where people get confused. And there's really two kinds of holiness that we see in the Scripture, in particular in the New Testament. The first one we can call positional. Uh, to be positionally holy in Christ and therefore not by works. So, Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 for just as through the disobedience of the one man, speaking of Adam there, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the one man there being Christ, the many will be made righteous. So you're positionally made righteous through the obedience of Christ. Through his obedience and him going to the cross, you are positionally made holy. It is the grace of God. It is not by works. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. It is the gift of God that has to be received. 1 Peter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's him. For the unrighteous, that's us to bring you to God, to reconcile you to God. So this is not by any work that you, that you do and you see that Christ has done it all. This is positional in Christ. And you must understand that you cannot work for it. Religion will tell you you must work your way to salvation. I tell you, you cannot. You never will. A perfect example of this, just this past week, I think yesterday, it ended in the in the, uh, in the Islamic uh, uh, faith. Uh, there's a very important celebration that just happened, it, it, and what they do there, it ends the, the hajj, which is the, the, the Muslims are required, at least once in their life, uh, lifetime, adult Muslims are required to take a pilgrimage to Mecca. And at the end of that time, it's a specific time in their in their reckoning of the calendar. At the end of that time, there's a great celebration. Uh, they almost liken it to to Christmas. And uh, there's actually two of these kinds. One ends Ramadan, and one ends this this uh, trip to the to the uh, or the Hajj or the trip to Mecca. And uh, there's very, very powerful uh, in in their reckoning and in their thought. And what they do at the end of this is they celebrate the faith of Abraham. Remember Abraham from the Old Testament? And Abraham took his son up to the mountain and God told him, you will sacrifice your only son and you will obey me and you will do this. And this is depicted as a test in the book of Genesis. Do you know the story? Any of you, (laughs) some of you, you know the story, right? And it's a really strange one because it's like, how can God ask Abraham to murder his only son? Like that sounds really twisted. And of course, at the end of the story, you see Abraham is ready to to sacrifice his son. In the Bible, this is Isaac, and he's ready to do this. And God says, stop. And you see there's an animal in the thicket there, and God provides a substitute for the son that was to be sacrificed. It's a, it's a beautiful story because it's kind of a rough picture of the future and what will happen in Jesus uh, but the interesting thing, if you, if you talk to Muslim people about this, th- there's a little bit of a debate, but most of them will say, and Joe's, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but most of them will say that it's Ishmael who was to be sacrificed that day and not Isaac. Why do I bring this up? Why is this significant? Um, I remember discussing this with a Muslim neighbor of mine, and he said, well, he talked to me about the story. He talked about Ishmael. I said, no, it wasn't Ishmael. It was Isaac. And he says, well, no, the, the, the teaching that we believe is that this was Ishmael, which is not, as far as I know, specifically mentioned in the Quran. And there is some debate about this in Muslim circles, but most of them will say that it's Ishmael. And what they do in, at the end of this celebration, often in, in many Muslim countries, is they will sacrifice animals. And again, remembering the faith of Abraham and his great faith, and they will give uh, the meat to the poor and to family and so on. Uh, but here's the point. The salvation that we have is not by works. It is not by the work of the flesh. It is not by Ishmael. Ishmael being the son of Abraham according to the flesh. You remember that he went and had that son through Hagar. But this was not the son of the promise. It was the son of the promise that God asked him to give up that day. The son of the promise of salvation. Jesus descends his line through Isaac. And so if Isaac lost his life that day, The whole salvation story would have come to a screeching halt. And this is what God was asking of Abraham, the son of the promise, you are going to sacrifice him. And the picture there is when he's got, when he's ready to do it, God says, stop. And he provides that substitute and you fast forward thousands of years and you have Jesus, the one and only Son of God, the only begotten Son who gives his life on a cross as a substitute for us. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture there of the grace of God. You cannot earn salvation. You cannot sacrifice your way to salvation. You cannot work your way to salvation. It is the gift of God. You're positionally made holy in Christ. On the other hand, the scripture would clearly, clearly say to us that holiness has a very practical side to it. And uh, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14, for example, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Make every effort to be holy. Well, didn't God make me holy? Well, yes, but this is talking about something practical here, something that you have to put effort into. Without holiness, stern warning, no one will see the Lord. Wow. I mean, this is very, very clear, very, very blunt. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. And quoting there from way back from the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. So this requires effort. This requires something personal on our part and something practical on our part. And I'll use this word sanctification. That means to be set apart, dedicated to God. And this is what God expects us to do. So yes, He has made us positionally holy. Yes, He has made us saints. But this is specifically because of His grace and because of what Christ has done. And then we have to put into practice and become, in a sense, what he's already made us to be. And that's what we're doing on planet Earth. And that's what we'll be doing until we breathe our last breath and we go into the presence of God. This is kind of like you ever heard of a doctor who practices or a lawyer who practices? Well, you're a saint in practice so god has declared you to be that but you're working it out and you're learning how to do it here on planet earth and this is critical for you and for me and for our salvation for our understanding of our walk with god again you cannot earn it but you need to learn to practice what god has already called you to be and if there if there's one lesson to, to learn from this, and this is a bit of a, you know, a bit of a theological message, I suppose. If there's one message for you to learn, one thing only that you get out of this message. When we sin against God, we sin against God. We often, as we said last week, we think about the person or the system or the whatever that we hurt when we transgressed, when we sinned. And we say, well, we, we hurt this person, uh, we stole from this person, we took vengeance on this person, whatever it is, and we feel bad for the individual, and as well we should. But we rarely consider, well, how does God feel about it? Because it's Him who established the standard. It, is, it isn't us, it isn't the person who we sinned against, or the people who we sinned against, it's God who created that standard? Uh, the best illustration, or one of the best that I could find in the Scripture, is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about him uh, next week when we deal with the whole subject of Labor Day. And those of you who don't work in the pastorate, do you know the story of Joseph? Roughly, this is the boy who had the dreams. Do you remember the boy who was given the coat of many colors uh, by his father? The boy who all his brothers were jealous. Him because he was treated. It seemed better than all the other brothers, and he boasted about his dreams. And what did his brothers do to him? They threw him in a. They threw him in a well. They faked his death to his father. Uh, he ended up being sold into slavery to the Egyptians. Do you remember? And uh, then he he. He, because of his abilities and because of his, he's an administrator, he's organized, he ends up in a household. He's sold into that house and he, he ends up being um, an administrator, if you will, in that household. And he, he's very good at his job. And the person who he's working for is very, very high standing uh, in that whole setup in Egypt. His name was Potiphar. And if you remember, Potiphar's wife had eyes for Joseph, young, young adult probably at that time. And it's very interesting to observe Joseph's reaction to this woman as she continues to try and seduce him. And there is an incident there that you see in Genesis 39 and verse 9. If you can picture this young adult male and he's, he's trying to be seduced by this woman. We don't know what she looks like, but presumably she's trying to make herself look very attractive to this young man. He's all alone. He's there in an alien place. He's there in Egypt. No one's looking. And he he goes through this whole This whole thought process right in front of her as she's trying to seduce this young man. And this is what he says in Genesis 39 and 9. And with this, we'll close. He says, no one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me. I'm in charge of the whole house except you. You're the only one who I'm not in charge of because you are. Are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? It doesn't say, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against my boss, or how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against you? But how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He is so aware and so conscious of of the presence of God in his life, that he does not want to disrupt that. He does not want to damage that in any way, shape, or form. We sing, let us become more aware of your presence. Uh, Oftentimes when we're out and about, we totally lose sight of the presence of God. And we don't have this type of consciousness of God that Joseph had, it seems, because him, he's very aware. Listen, God's presence is in my life. And if I do what you are asking me to do, I'm not sinning against you, first and foremost, Potiphar's wife, we don't know her name. I'm not sinning against Potiphar, first and foremost, I'm sinning against God. And if we will learn that principle uh, as, as believers today, if we will learn that, wow, you know, the first thing I need to consider if I'm going to run that red light is what is that going to do with God's presence that is in me? What damage is that going to cause in my my walk with him? What's that going to do? What's that going to create? Do I really want to do that if I'm conscious of the presence of God in my life? Would you stand with me?